Hello everyone, Tony here. It's hard to believe, but Dwayne and I started this podcast almost one year ago. To date, we have published over 30 episodes, have had the show downloaded over 1,200 times, and have reached eight different countries. Through it all, we've had a great time, telling and hearing stories, and diving deep into the world of human forestry. As with many projects like this, it starts as a totally different idea and morphs itself into its own entity. Treeactions has grown and will continue to. Dwayne and I are always looking for new ways to connect and grow the community. We have opened a Patreon page, which can be found by searching for Treeactions on the Patreon website or app. A link is also posted in the show notes. Recording, producing, and publishing a podcast does not come free. And while this is truly a labor of love, and access to the podcast will always be free, we wanted to develop a way for those of you who wish to support the show to do so. For those that support the show through Patreon, you will get access to the episodes a week earlier and be able to comment should you choose. In the future, we develop more content available only on Patreon. I want to thank you all for listening and for all of you who have reached out to express your appreciation for the show. It really does mean the world to us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tree Actions, the Human Forestry Podcast, with my trusty co-host, Tony Tressault, over in uh, Pomeroy, Pennsylvania, and joining us today from the great state of Pennsylvania as well, Mr. Jeff Dice. Welcome, Jeff. It's a... it's great to have you on the show, Jeff, and uh, we always kind of kick things off by asking our, our guests if they could just tell us their first memory or recollection of how their first tree memory, like that you where you feel that you connected with trees. What's the first thing that pops into your mind? Uh, Tony probably knows this story. And, uh, you know, for me, uh, my background in trees really came out of a family tragedy. Oh, wow. And in, uh, I was 12 years old, 1968. And um, <clears throat> I took that phone call that day and uh, dad had had a major accident. And, uh, you know, it didn't take, long for a 12 year old to figure out it wasn't going to be a good day. And, uh, mom took the, took the call and, you know, for the next two and a half years, we spent a lot of time in hospitals. He had, um, he had 13 operations over a two, two and a half year period. Um, you know, I was too young at the time to fully understand what happened. But when I think back on it and, you know, just from different maybe conversations that I heard, you know, growing up, <clears throat> he, he was taking an elm tree down yeah. and, uh, his, he was roping something off of the same area that he was, his anchor point was and had a catastrophic failure. Yeah. He fell probably 25, 30 feet. Yeah. Um, it was a pretty horrific accident um the kind of the again another conversation from that time was um it was such a horrific accident that um you know the his ground man ran for help um the first responder came and uh, <clears throat> had a hard time even relaying 
to some other folks to come and help just because of what he saw. And um, he fell and took the the full impact with his hands. And it was, I was told that, uh, you know, basically the bones in his forearm went into the ground. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, that, that changed our life. Um, You know, my brother, Mark, mom and I, um, you can imagine how that mm-hmm. impacted, you know, small, small business. Um, <clears throat> after World War II, dad had um, worked for the Davy Tree Company, learned his trade, and at some point decided to go out on his own, he, you know, small business. He had a truck, he had a chipper, a little Fitchburg chipper, and a Model 10 stump machine. And <clears throat> what was interesting about that time you know, Tony knows, knew my dad. He was a strong man. And as soon as he was able to get up with casts on his arms, he went back to work. Wow. And as a 12-year-old, my first uh, uh, work as a tree <laughs> in the tree industry was with the pitchfork. Uh, because we would, we would go out and dig stumps with that stump machine. And, you know, that was an interesting time. What a lot of elm trees were going down in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, Dad had the only large stump machine in the Pittsburgh market. Now, you know, Davey and Bartlett had large stump machines, but, you know, I never saw them in in town. And, you know, you talk about the the tree forest. Um, Really what happened there uh, was all the local tree companies um, rallied around our family as well as the larger family. And um, probably over the next five years, we never lost a bid for any stump removal in that area. And we, we covered from the Ohio line, probably East all the way over to Crescent. And um, that's how, you know, the community rallied around us And, um, you know, he was in the hospital and amazingly bids were put in, you know, cause he wasn't able. And so his friends, coworkers, and, um, like I said, that's how we, we survived. And, uh, I dug more stumps than you can even imagine. Wow. And that was, you know, mostly municipal work, wow. uh, cemeteries, um, and then also private work. And then, you know, we worked for, most of the major tree companies, you know, around Pittsburgh. Wow. And, um, and like I said, he, he would dig stumps, you know, two casts on his arms. Wow. And like I said, he had 13 operations over a two year period. So after an operation, as soon as he was able to get up and move, he, he did. Yeah. And, uh, <clears throat> I remember at that time we also did, you know, so I was probably, you know, 14, um, <clears throat> there, there started to be a situation where he would do a tree climber for hire situation where he'd bring a climber in uh, to do the, the aerial work. And, you know, then we would take it at whatever point we could given the situation and <laughs> the age of his crew. And um, I remember uh, saying, Hey, Hey dad, I think I can do that. And uh, I was young. I was probably 15. And I remember the first tree I climbed was in our backyard. Uh, it was a medium to large size pin oak. And, and uh, 
<laughs> his his uh, comment to me was, "Are you sure you want to do this?" <laughs> and uh, I was determined, you know, because you know Mark and 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 I and Mom, you know, our life changed at that point, and that's what you did. Yeah. yeah. And you know, through that whole time frame, um, we any opportunity that we had, you know, I mean, there, there was no vacations, you know, you, the truck would come home and our job, Mark and I, our job was to unload, you know, and he didn't even have a dump truck. So every night it was with a pitchfork. Wow. So, yeah, uh, it was, an, it was, you know, an interesting time, but it really brought us together as a family. Um, and, you know, as I, as I got a little bit older, um, he, I became his hands. He, um, right. he would basically coach me. Through, yeah. you know, and he never put me in positions that, you know, for a kid of that age, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. mostly it was small, small trim jobs and small removals. And then as I become, became more confident, you know, things got larger. Right, right. It was an interesting, I was telling my, my kids and grandchildren the story. Um, you know, when you, you get to be 16 and you get your learner's permit right. and uh, the, the day that document arrived in the mail, <laughs> He met me on the, the path of our house and handed to me and said, let's go. Wow. And, uh, you know, from his perspective, uh, that would allow him to put another crew right, out. Right. And um, so by the time I was 16, 17, I was running a crew. Wow. Now, I say that in, in with a little bit of uh, – <laughs> he basically uh, – Bob Powell was a, an older gentleman that had retired and he put Bob Powell with me to make sure I didn't do anything stupid. Right. right. And, um, you know, and, and again, you know, as you gain, um, experience and you gain confidence, then, you know, the projects got larger and, you know, and after high school, I, I, um, went to Penn state and, uh, studied forestry. Mark went, went on to, uh, get a degree in geology and, um, but, you know, every opportunity, you know, we would work, um, you know, basically just trying to and, – and, you know, that story is probably similar to a lot of, you know, startup, startup companies. You know, I've heard it from other folks. You know, you just come together as a family and you get it done. Mm -hmm. And um, after college then, you know, his business started to grow and there was a point where we were running three crews. That stump machine, we wore two of those out. Wow over the course of that time. And, uh, yeah, they're the old Vermeer model 10. So tell me about and, that uh, Vermeer model like said, 10. Let, what describe the, give us a description of the machine and what it was like to run that thing. Well, it, it was a, um, a trailer that had, um, what two posts, uh, for the wheels. And when you were in travel mode, the wheels would turn in. And then when you were digging, you would actually turn those uh, posts with the wheels out that would give you more width. Ah. And um, yeah. And, you know, and then the, uh, the motor and cutter wheel would just traverse, traverse across the, the rails. And uh, it didn't, it didn't, yeah, it didn't we, go, it didn't have a hinge. It more just went back and forth. No, you, you know, the newer ones have a central right. pivot, you know, point. Well, this one actually went across a, a set of um, rails. Wow. And it, it could take some pretty big stumps as a result of that. And uh, like I said, we, 
we were, we wore two of those out, you know, and then, like I said, later on as, as things got, um, progressed a little bit and, you know, he, he was better and, um, you know, it, it continued to a point where we actually started to look like a company. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You're the, well, first of all, thank you for sharing that. And, uh, you know, that, and, you know, letting yourself go back to that event because, you know, clearly it was traumatic and it, and it would be for anyone, you know, so I want to thank you for, for doing that and sharing that like that. Oh, we've had two guests just recently on the show that one, both have survived very traumatic injuries and uh, one involving a tree, one involving skydiving. Uh, well, base jumping actually, but you know, the, the description of the recovery process and, and the rallying of people around them, it's common. It seems to be a common theme, at least in with people in the tree world, the first, I'm sure in, you know, in other places as well, but, uh, uh, you know, it, it, I always wonder if, you know, those types of events, I think it either makes it or breaks it, right? Like, because I think sometimes people leave that, you know, we've had people contact our office where, the, unfortunately, the, the the father didn't survive. And then the family just, you know, dispels the business. They just leave the industry type of thing. Uh, but often they don't. They stick with it, which is what you guys did. I know your dad didn't pass away from it. But that's a pretty traumatic thing that could make you wonder, Did was there ever a question around that or did you guys just, this is, this is what we do and we're going to do it this We're going to stick with it. Well, you know, you had a, you had a small business that was just starting out. There really wasn't any options. Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, and like I said, family, Aunt Marie and uncle Ed would come every, every couple times during the week and definitely on the weekends and bring food. And, wow. you know, we, you know, financially that was a huge hardship. Yeah for yeah. us. And, you know, you, any, any small business like that, you know, you start to have a little bit of debt, you know, just to buy a yeah, truck yeah. and a stump machine and he could have lost it all. And, you know, I've, you know, that rallying around him, um, and that whole idea of, I mean, we, we dug for every company and a lot of that was because it was dad and, you know, there was no conflict of interest. Like we were going to take a client or, you know, that kind of thing. We, um, that's how they supported them. And I, I, you know, I'm hoping a lot of people hear this and I'm sure a lot of the people that were involved in that are gone right. at this right. point, but you know, I publicly need to thank. Right. Well, uh, that, I'm sure that they're, we're happy to help and, uh, we'll do it again. And, uh, you know, I, how do you feel that's influenced you, you know, in your, you know, giving back cause you've been involved with ISA and, you know, was that a key factor? Do you think, and for you, as a not only as an artist oh, but a volunteer? Yeah, most definitely. And you know, a lot of that was was dad. You know, after his accident, he was uh, very much um, interested in you know safety and safety training, and and um, you know, the ISA was the natural uh, place to obtain those kinds of. Um, that education as real as, as well as just, you know, learning about trees in general. So Pendel as a chapter um, is, is, you know, they run a great conference, a lot of educational programs, a lot of safety training. And, um, you know, he became involved in that over the years after his accident. And, um, you know, really, 
you know, the majority of the membership in Pennsylvania are in the, is in the Philadelphia and Delaware area. And it, at that time, you know, in the Pittsburgh area, there really wasn't a lot of participation with the ISA. And so he made it a mission to, uh, you know, really kind of bring the state together and, and always would encourage, you know, other, other tree companies to, um, you know, take, take advantage of what ISA would offer. And, um, how did your, uh, did, did your career progress into, cause I know you spent a long time at Penn state and had a pretty neat job there. Where did that transition? How did that all come to pass? Well, it actually came out of a local tree climbing championship. Uh, again, as part of bringing the state together, um, we actually had two different competitions. We had the Eastern competition, which was the main qualifying event for, you know, ISA competition. But, you know, really the Western part of the state, I mean, we were still learning. And um, a couple of those early competitions were, um, I wouldn't call them demonstration events, but, you know, we all were learning about the competition. And, and for me, and um, what happened was um, Penn State had lost their arborist uh, in a car accident and, you know, they were actively recruiting and, um, Tony, we went to, um, the, the event at Eden hall and, um, dad, you know, organized that event and, and, uh, unbeknownst to me, um, a supervisor from the college was there and, and from that time, uh, and meeting him, the guy kept asking me questions and I wasn't sure why. And really what happened was, is he was interviewing me and I didn't even know it. And, uh, it was shortly after that, um, they made an offer to both Chris Edson and myself. And, uh, we both, I, that was a great, I mean, that's where I really learned how to climb trees is working with Chris. And, um, you know, so dad was at a point in his career where, he was, he was ready to retire. Um, he, he sold his business and, and I ended up at university park and, um, that was a great move for my family. Uh, Penn state's a very dynamic place to work. Um, you know, just from a employment perspective, but also, you know, I mean, you've got the best, some of the best researchers in the world. I mean, if anything, anything you need, um, they're, they have a lot to offer. And, um, so it was a great, great, uh, move for me personally. And, um, you know, so I climbed there for, uh, 12 years and then it, there was a point where another opportunity came up and I was able to move up a level and became a supervisor, um, for the rest of the time. Excellent. And, and how did you transition into involved with ITCC and eventually being chair of the of the international championships. Go ahead and uh, repeat that because I you you cut out there. Sorry. Sorry. I was just asking how you how it evolved for you through the competitions to being involved with ITCC and eventually chair of that event. Yeah. So uh, what was it, uh, Tony? Two thousand four, two thousand five, uh, when the event was in Pittsburgh. Yeah, two thousand four um, was Pittsburgh. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, John. Yeah, yeah. Two thousand four, um, 
John Smith was the overall uh, conference chair, and he asked me to handle the ITCC. And, you know, I'd, I'd been to local events and competed a couple times, um, um, but I'd never been to an international event. And as a result of that, um, me being asked to be the local organizing chair for the ITCC, I went to Montreal and, um, you know, com- complete rookie. Um, had no, yeah. I, I'd never seen a competition like that. And, you know, so they ne- immediately put me as a timer in the secured footlock. And I'm pretty sure we timed the world record that day. And then I watched oh, yeah. Bettis. And if you remember that climb, yeah, yeah. Uh, after watching him <laughs> just navigate through that massive tree, I, I was hooked. Um, and, yeah, um, you know, and then once uh, the next, the following year, uh, was the Pittsburgh event. And then I met, uh, I met Jasper T. Cornfield. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know that we've had, ja- we've had, ja- we've had Scott on the show, but we haven't had Jasper on the show. Oh, wait a minute. Yes. That's yeah. Jasper. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, that, that's very there. true to say we've had Scott on, we haven't had his alter ego yet. That's, that's, that is true. Correct. <laughs> exactly. And, and you know, Scott is a, is an amazing recruiter. And, um, uh, I got, I, I, you know, and truthfully, I'm not sure I knew what I was getting myself into. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know how, uh, you know, and at that time in the ITCC, um, you know, the, the competition at that point was really, uh, a focus of, innovation, um, you know, different technique, uh, different, um, configurations of gear. And, um, you know, so I, as far as the rules committee, uh, I did like a partial year training with Scott. And then the following year he was still on the committee, uh, but he was what head chair of the event at that point as well and needed to, you know, delegate. And so I took that committee and, you know, really the, you know, during that time of, of evolution in climbing technique and equipment, um, you know, the ITCC rules committee, I mean, we had to adapt to keep up with the change. Mm -hmm. And, um, so I, you know, I, I had two terms on that, that committee and then, um, turned that over to, uh, Tom Greenwood and his capable hands moving forward. Um, you know, so that was a, what, six and a half, seven year yep. commitment. And then after that, um, helped out with the head judge role in the work climb, you know, for me, it, it's always been one to help out, you know, cause yep. I mean, where can you go and, and get a chance to hang with some of the most accomplished tree professionals in the world. Yep. And, uh, it was a great experience and really had an impact on my career and, and really my life. Um, met some, you know, lifelong friends and, and, uh, you know, really kind of set the standard for, for safety for me as an arborist, but also as a supervisor. You know, you touched on the, the concept of the human forest and how it's affected you not only professionally, but personally or in your life. Um, how, how would you describe how trees have affected your, not only your professional life, but as you mentioned, your personal life, like 
in what way do you think that's had an impact on you? Is there a way that you could kind of uh, share with us how that's affected you? Well, you know, obviously it's been a passion, you know, through my whole career. I mean, I, I grew up and like I said, as long as soon as I was old enough to uh, do any kind of work, you <laughs> uh, when you grow up in a, in a tree business, um, you know, and I, as we explained earlier, as I explained earlier, you know, and that was something that came out of just a, a total family need. Um, yeah. but you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoyed climbing, uh, uh, got a chance to work with Chris up at Penn State, and you know, we—if you've ever seen the elm trees up there, those were impressive. Right. And you know, I got to—I got to tell you, I was a little intimidated at first. I mean, they're amazing trees. Right. Um, and uh, you know, just so you know, how it impacted my life. I mean, I remember uh, when I when I did retire from Penn State, uh, I was really on the fence. I. I wasn't sure I wanted to do that. And I remember Joan, my wife said, you know, Jeff, that's part of your identity. It's part of your passion. Um, But, you know, going into retirement, um, you know, just develop a new, a new identity. And, uh, and that's what you do. And uh, so I, I didn't really retire. Um, I think I I really call it free agency. And, you know, because now you can do whatever you want. And uh, so, I don't know if I answered your question. Well, yeah. Well, how did your, how would you say your role in the human force changed? Like in the, in, you know, from being, from retiring as active in the tree industry to now, you know, active as part of the human forest and changing your identity, as you say, can you describe that process or what, what does that mean? You know, what, who are you today in relation to the, the human forest or even the urban forest? Well, you know, you'd ask about, um, you know, wanting to commit time and, and volunteering, you know, during my time as a professional arborist, I, you know, that was really came out of my upbringing and my experience with my father and, and his company and, and, uh, wanted to be a part of that. Um, you know, and there's, there was benefits, uh, for both. I mean, you, you know, you, you donate your time, but also, you, you know, what you gain from that is, is more than you can, can even measure. Um, having moved forward, I, I guess my last international event was Washington, you know, and there's a point where, you know, you really need to get out of the way and let some of the younger guys, you know, mm-hmm. get a chance to make their contribution. And, uh, I've still worked, um, at the, in Pendel, um, you know, uh, for the local competitions and, and will continue to do that in the future. Right. And, um, and, uh, you know, from a retirement perspective, uh, you know, I, I still consult and, uh, but, but you do it, you do it at your, um, discretion, so to speak, you know, you, you can, uh, what's nice about retirement and, you know, if you, if, if you, if you're able to plan well, you can charge your full rate or you could charge nothing because it's the right thing to do. Right. Right. And, uh, and, uh, you know, so I've been doing both <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah. So I get that. I get that. Um, what do you, what you meant? You're talking about the, you've mentioned Chris twice and, and your experience climbing at Penn state in the trees. What is your most poignant memory of climbing? Like either the first or what, when you, when you think about climbing the elms at Penn state, what, what, 
what comes to mind? Is it the view, the feeling? Well, they were, they were just impressive creations. You know, I, 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 I had never experienced trees of that grandeur and size and really history. Um, and to be able to take care of them was, was an honor. And, um, you know, working with Chris, I mean, I, I've worked with a number of arborists, um, in my time, but never worked with one that was as diligent and thoughtful, Mm. um, in his approach to managing trees and, you know, just with the, the worst work ethic that was just impressive to be around. Mm. And, um, you know, because we we would we would never touch an elm except during the winter. So that, you know, we climbed in some pretty crazy, um, pretty crazy times. I mean, my my uh, joke to him was, if my uh, pole pruner goes to ninety degrees at any time, I'm done. <laughs> you know, because it was always windy up there, and you know, you're you're in trees that are you know 110, 120 feet tall with 50, 60 foot uh, off center. You know, when you go out walk out yeah, of them. Yeah. <laughs> it was an impressive time. I, I really enjoyed, uh, you know, the, the short time that I was able to do that. And, uh, you know, it was, it was again, another one of those life changes when you, when you change from being a production arborist to being in supervision in a union environment and they won't let you right. climb anymore. Right. Uh, that was, I had, that, that was an adjustment as well. Right. Um, but, but, you know, that was the right time for me at my career, um, you know, and then it, you get to, to uh, explore other aspects of, of horticulture and, and, you know, the, the whole um, managing of a collection of trees. And, uh, you know, we built an arboretum. Uh, we changed, uh, you know, the crews and the way we deploy people to include, you know, hortic- horticulture operation um, a uh, landscape construction operation in addition to the team that was already there and, and doing great work. And uh, so that was a, that was a fun experience and change too. And Penn state was always a very dynamic environment. I mean, they, they were always building, there was always something going on. And, you know, so I kind of changed from a production arborist to, um, you know, the guardian. Wow. <laughs> you, you, my, my, uh, uh, my line to the crew was never let, a uh, one-day event ruin a hundred years of heritage, right? And uh, we were we were pretty strict on that, you know, because you know guys with backhoes they they don't get it, right? And uh, unless you help them understand, so well, you know, it's interesting. It it, it just like it makes me think of the human forest concept, and you know, like we all are, you know, the construction crews are a plant or something that in, that is part of the forest. And if it's left, if it isn't managed, it can do damage. Right. And, and, uh, but I, I'm curious about how you, cause I think it's a common problem that many people face is the, particularly in municipal type environments, whether it be educational or municipal or whatever, but where you have factions or silos within an organization that are responsible for, things like construction, things like maintenance, things like the trees and the turf, whether it be landscape construction or actual like digging up utility pipes, whatever, the more integrated they could be like a forest is, I think the better it can be. And there is ways of doing things. How were you able to be a guardian and, and earn the respect 
where you were able to have influence on these other areas? Because that's what it sounds like you, you're able to do. You know, it was interesting as we were always the first um, team that was in on any construction. Wow. Um, and that, you know, you, you develop that credibility by, um, you know, giving accurate information. You know, not all trees are, are the same. Not, they're not worth the same. They don't have all the same history. Some are replaceable, some aren't. Okay. Some are in better health. Uh, some, and, you know, so we, we would uh, basically uh, did a lot of assessment uh, prior to construction. And then, you know, once, uh, it was determined that a tree was going to, you know, be preserved, we, we would guard it like a junkyard dog. And, um, you know, the thing is, is I, I, I did, uh, right after I retired, I kind of went on a road tour and did a lot of speaking primarily in the botanic garden world. Uh-huh. And I, I, I was talking to a fair size audience and I said, okay, who, in in your uh, professional experience has you know had your trees damaged and you know and what what people didn't understand is contractors with heavy equipment basically are doing exactly what they're told and if unless you um, do your homework early and set up the parameters whether it be through specifications and or um, you know just setting limits um, really if if your trees get damaged it was your own fault and we we were able to establish uh, you know a, a, um, a hierarchy of different um, um, assessments of trees and you know even to the point where they would change building envelopes to protect particular trees um, and wow. what was great um, during the major campaign for building at Penn State, because um, they had uh, a grand destiny campaign that had, that raised over $1.3 billion. And they went and, and they really upgraded facilities. And, and um, <clears throat> one of the great things that they did was, when I say they, the upper management team recognized very quickly that there would be trees lost. Right. And, you know, so we actually had budgeting to uh, plant new trees on campus at a stable uh, funding level uh, through my whole time there. Um, so actually during, through some major construction, we actually um, increased the total number of trees on campus by a significant amount. Right. Interesting. I'm curious how you would, what if you can just give us an overview of the criteria to, uh, you know, to, I mean, all trees are alive and valuable, but like, like you said, the ones you would guard like a junkyard dog, what would get a tree to that level of protection? What would it take for it to meet that status? You know, when you have a facility uh, like a major university um, that has long history, there are some uh, trees that have really been witness to that since the beginning. Okay. And at Penn State, we had a program, what we called our Heritage Tree Program. Yeah. And out of a collection of like 17 or 18,000 trees, there were only like 20 or 30 that had met that designation. And, you know, those trees were completely off limits Um, and they would be protected and would and had value enough that would change projects. Um, uh, Other trees that were kind of like the up and coming, the next generation uh, that, you know, um, we, we would assess them. Uh, for their condition, their health, their species, and, you know, uh, anything that would 
um, identify them as, you know, an asset to the university that needed to be protected. Um, you know, the way that system worked was the assistant vice president for physical plant had the final say. We would we would get recommendations on what trees were to be preserved. But really, you know, the final decision is is what's in the best interest of the university. And so the and it rarely happened, but the, on a couple of occasions, you know, it, it made sense to take down a, a mature tree. Um in order to further the, the, the mission of the university, you know, into the future. Right. And um, it was a very dynamic um, environment. Um, and I had a great relationship with all the contractors on campus, um, you know, because we all had a common goal. You know, we, we needed to, to uh, preserve and protect a historic collection of trees as well as, you know, build world-class facilities so that, you yeah. know, we could meet the educational mission. Of the university. Yeah. So, what do you think it was that made that happen? Just like personality types? It was just the right alignment, or was it the way it, you went about it? I, I don't think. Obviously, I don't. You're not suggesting you take full credit for it all, but like that's a pretty special oh, no. thing. Was, that's a pretty special thing. What What do you think made that that work like that? Well, you know, again, it's a team effort. You know, you, the the uh, the arborist crew and the way they conducted themselves. But you know, but I held them to a high standard as far as what we, you know, the way we managed it. And, and um, you know, the first time that I encountered it, uh, you know, when you when you see the, uh, the the layout stakes on a construction site, and typically they're offset from like like a curb line or you know something that's to be built. And <laughs> I was a brand new supervisor. I I had only been in the job a couple months, and there was a big project that was going on to to uh, uh, upgrade a um, a road network in within the central part of the campus. And when I got the phone call, <laughs> I, I, I mean, if I could show you a picture, you'd be amazed. They had already done the excavation. All there was this 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 network of damaged roots. Uh, to the point where any arborist that would have looked at it would have made the same exact decision I did. That tree's got to go. Right. I mean, we're not, we're not going to, uh, you know, that's something you can't bury. And, and, you know, when you have 47,000 students changing uh, classes every 55 minutes, I mean, the chances of killing somebody was really high. Right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so I, I cut the tree down. Yep. <laughs> on my own authority. Right. Well, you can imagine how that went wow. with the upper management folks, you know, the president of the university. And, and so the directive that I was given was is that you must come up with a way of assessing these trees in a, in a document form that, that could be provided to um, the construction folks as well as the designers um, prior to the start of any construction, even, you know, when you're first considering it. And, um, and we did that and, and that process, uh, was hugely valuable and, um, really preserved a lot of trees on campus, you know, because when you get into a situation where you're doing tree preservation, um, it's a, it's a negotiation because I always wondered if you ask me to do the same project, how would I do it? You know, if I had to, you know put glazing on the side of a building with a crane or, or uh, dig a foundation of a, a new building, you know, 40 feet into the ground. Uh, you, I mean, you got to be able to do that work. Right. And, uh, 
And so we would, we would look at uh, ways to preserve while facilitating construction. And, well, that's amazing. And, uh, you know, I, I know, I know it's not completely unique to Penn state, but it is, it is, it is, it's not the rule in my experience, you know, in my travels and we do a lot of work with municipalities that there's so often such a massive disconnect between, you know, the forestry crew and the streets crew, for example, or whatever, like they just don't really connect at all. And in fact, for some reason or not, there's often animosity or, you know, dislike because they're always, you know, you guys are always mad at what we do and vice versa. Right. And, uh, you get a, you get a lot more done with with coopetition or cooperation, right? And I think that that somehow you know you were able to preserve that. And I think professionalism goes a long way. But you know, interesting. The first event was look, I'm cutting this tree down. It's just happening. It created a bit of a startle response, and it paved the way for what happened in some ways. Yeah, and you know, my my whole uh, plan on it was not to create an adversarial relationship. You know, you, you work more with you know again because your your job is to facilitate construction, and you know, I knew it was working when I would start to have contractors call me, um, and say, "Oh, wow, we can't do this." Wow, and it was it was fantastic, and uh, they knew that if they wanted to work there, they had to that that was part of the you know, the, their, their expectation. And, uh, it worked, it, uh, it worked really well, but you know, it's something that you have to continue to, to, uh, work at, uh, you know, the whole time you're, you, you can't, you can't let up on it you got to set that standard and, and, um, you know, follow through on it. I think that's a really interesting perspective I mean, you shared there, Jeff, is that there, it was that you, part of your job was to facilitate those, those projects. Absolutely. Not not standing in their way or it wasn't just completely tree focused. Again, you were forest focused. You were focused on the whole collective, not just this tree. Right. <laughs> I remember the uh the first um the first well it was the second time I had a, a run in with a contractor and they, they took a dump truck and they, they drove it down a sidewalk and and the uh dump truck operator again trying to do what he was asked to do ran up on the root flare of the tree. And unfortunately for him, <laughs> it basically took all the bark probably up four or five feet on the tree and just, you know, it just peeled it right off of a red oak. Oh. And uh, so we, we assessed the damage and um, I assessed the contractor for the value of the damage. And he said, well, geez, for that kind of money, I'll just cut the tree down and, and uh, I'll give you the money. And, and I said, well, hold on. <laughs> I assessed the damage. I didn't assess the value of the tree. Right. And, I said, and he, he was resisting. And I said, well, you just need to understand I'm pretty good in court. And <laughs> it was interesting from that point on, before that contractor would even consider coming on campus, we were the first phone call. Wow. And, you know, they were one of the prime contractors that, that were, were successful uh, in in obtaining bids for a lot of the projects and and we over time you know it started out a little bit of a bumping into each other but you know as we worked more together um, we we uh, were both had the same goal and mission in, in mind to, to preserve and 
while they got their good building built and we kept our trees. So, Jeff, we had a conversation once about around these about why Penn State would spend so much money on their trees. And the answer you gave me was really probably my first glimpse into like urban forestry and the value of urban forestry on and and if you could just describe a little bit, why did Penn State have such a big tree budget? Why did they value those trees so deeply beyond the historical significance? You know, when you, it was widely believed and, you know, um, not just by Penn State, but through a lot of um, facilities managers that, you know, people make their decision on whether they, uh, want to attend a university or or uh, spend time in any particular place within the first 15 minutes of walking on campus. And, you know, so the, the quality of the grounds maintenance, um, you know, the just the uh, the impact that the trees would bring, you know, it it it, it signifies the history um, of the, you know, the, the longevity of the facility and um, we, we took that very seriously uh, with regard to how people viewed uh, the university as a whole. And, um, you know, so whether it was, you know, through our tree management, um, our horticulture displays, um, general grounds maintenance, the cleanliness of the facility, it, it all had an impact um, on whether people actually wanted to come. And, you know, if you look at the uh, application statistics for, the university um, every year. I mean, they were one of the leading universities in the country that, uh, as far as people wanting to attend there, and and you know while a lot of it had to do with the quality of programs and the educational aspect of it, um, really just the feel of the actual uh, environment and location had a huge impact on whether people wanted to come. You know, because they're spending big money to come there. There's no doubt, and um, you know, it it added to that level of quality with you know high end buildings, high end facilities, and then you know just the grounds. Interesting. And you know, the crews worked very hard to manage that. Interesting. So they actually like it was actually part of the almost the marketing strategy or the inherent value. Absolutely. Of the, of the university wasn't just in. You know, the, yeah, I'm reminded, Tony, of data doesn't matter. You know, it, it, it's not just the value of the education and, and the quality of instruction, but like where you actually have to live for those four years or however long you're attending and the quality of life, you know, it, 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 it's, it's all impacted and certainly pe- something people consider for sure. Because, you, you know, you could technically do the same thing online these days, right? But it's not the same. <laughs> Yeah, and I think no, that, you know, not. just the whole, you know, the University Park State College, the town itself was is built around the university. And it's really in in many respects a bubble. It's very idyllic, you know, and, and you're right when people, you know, or parents, when you send your children to yeah. university, one, it is a, a big financial investment. And two, you, you don't want to have to worry about them, right? You want them to feel safe, you know, and and, and I think the trees were a huge part of that, especially, you know, the, the Elm Collection and, and the things that were all there and that just that part of the world made it. You know, and I say this not as just a Penn State alum myself, you know, but it's it it is kind of a cool place, and the trees were a huge, huge part of it. Um, not just because you know, in my time as an arborist, running around speaking and doing different trainings, I've been on a ton of different 
similar sized, you know, university campuses, everything from Alabama. Like it, it amazed me. I was on the University of Alabama campus and I drove in uh, looking for a conference hall or something. And it, it had a different feel about it. Then you went underneath this railroad bridge and it like the attitude changed. And what I'd, I'd found out is that first section that I drove into had been hit by a tornado like five years before. There were no mature trees and all the buildings were new. When you got into the older part of the campus, the feel of the campus really changed, you know, and I think that, you know, Penn State with the trees and with the historical significance and everything they did for the grounds, you said, you know, all of it was was huge, you know, just it made that. And for me, that was my first big glimpse into, you know, as being a production arborist and just a dude that climbs trees and cuts on trees like urban forestry, ah, nothing about that. You know, I was too busy looking at trees, not the forest. But that was my first glimpse into like, wait. Maybe there is something to this urban forestry stuff. You know, it does it does change the way people perceive things. You know, you guys have mentioned the, the elms and the historical nature of them, and unfortunately, I'm not as aware of the that, and maybe some of our listeners wouldn't be either. Like, what is the story of the elms at Penn State? What like what gives them that historical significance from the time they were planted, obviously, to now? Yeah, the initial uh, planting uh, was in 1890. Wow. Uh, and then with a follow-up planting uh, in 1920. And um, it, it was interesting, you know, as the, as the young, uh, what, the Pennsylvania Farmers College grew um, and started to be, you know, head toward being a university. I mean, it was a land-grant, uh, one of the land-grant universities of the United States through the, you know, there's one in every state. And yep, yep. Um, very early on, they made a, a, a I thought was a, a historic decision that um, they, they basically laid out a landscape plan for the university um, as a whole. So that as the facilities, facilities expanded, you know, they, they could um, also install the landscape that was going to complement it. And so those trees, uh, again, it, the 1890 ones were probably 50, 60 inches in diameter, uh, 110, 120 feet tall. Um, wow. What, some of the larger ones were 150, 140 foot spreads. Um, wow. And it really created a, an area that was, I mean, it was just majestic. Um, now in 2007, now you can imagine uh, – how this impacted me as, as a supervisor. We all were in Hawaii, if you remember right. that fantastic yeah. time. Yeah. And um, Joan and I, in addition to that time with the ITCC, took a few extra days. You know, actually, we were over there three weeks total. Right. You know, so the competition, plus then yeah. some time, just enjoying some time together. Yeah. And, and when I got home, I, I was like, hey, guys, what's going on here? I'm, I'm seeing some stuff. And they said, hey, Jeff, wait. We're aware of it. Uh, we're not sure what it is. Uh, and it was um, Alan Sam's crew uh, with the Borough State College that actually did the final uh, assessment. And it turned out to be elm yellows. And uh, we went into a, a, an outrageous time where um, I had to help the university community understand that this legacy planting of trees was not going to be there for much longer. And um, probably one of the best decisions I made at the time was I would not allow a tree to be cut down. And it turned out that it, it seasonally it worked out 
well. I mean, from a disease management perspective, um, I would. I mean, I know Chris and the crew were uh, really. Uh, they weren't real happy with me um, at the time because I I held them up and I wouldn't let them cut a tree down until everyone within the university uh, community knew what was going on. And we went on a, a road show where we um, started with all the facility coordinators. We went to the, to the uh, alumni council. The, the president had a, a, um, a group that, that would advise him, the university president. I think we did, um, I think it was 12 different like public meeting type um, events so that everyone knew. And by the time we actually had to start cutting trees down, people were coming up to me. It was like a funeral. Right. And they would come up and shake my hand and say, I'm sorry for your loss. Wow. And uh, we actually, in a two-year period, we lost um, probably 80 trees. Uh, there was 43 one year. Um, yeah, I'd have to look at the old data. But, you know, so from a crew perspective, um, my first move as a supervisor was to call Scott Prophet and, and Tony, and we did the crane school. Uh-huh. because I knew there was going to be a lot of dead trees. And given my history with dead elm trees, as I explained before, I was very concerned. Right. I didn't want to get anybody hurt. And uh, so we we uh, commissioned a, a crane school. Tony and Scott came in, and I uh, opened it up to any arborist uh, that was interested within the area, within the state. And I don't know how many people were there, Tony. It was a lot. And um, we uh, – we set up a situation where we actually brought a crane in and, and allowed them to do the work wow. and um, were trees that we knew had to come down. And, um, you know, through that time, then the other part of it was, is, okay, how, how are you going to restore this area? And I was um, pretty concerned. <laughs> you can imagine the conversations with the landscape architects. And I, I needed to, I need a landscape design to restore this area yeah. following this, you know, disease disaster. Right. And, uh, you know, so I was getting pushed back. Wait a minute. Is this a, is this a 10 years? Is this going to happen over 20 years? And I said, how about two? <laughs> and, 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 and again, that's, that's another way where the university community uh, rallied to solve a pretty significant problem. Yeah. Uh, the university tree commission, the uh, campus planning design, at Penn State, um, all the, the landscape architects, um, Derek Culp, Tom Flynn, Gordon Tarot, um, uh, all the upper mid. And what was cool about it is because we let everyone know what was going to happen, um, there wasn't any like shock of it. Um, and like I said, people were bought into it and we removed what had to be removed aggressively and started to replant immediately. And if you walk on campus today, most people won't even know. Wow. Um, with, uh, you know, <laughs> I told one of the upper management uh, guys, I had a, I had, uh, I bought two tons of fertilizer and I knew how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> and I had one of the techs, um, I told him, I said, I, uh, I want to see, <laughs> I want to see four, four feet of growth a year. And he, he walked into my office and he had this leaf. I mean, it was, <laughs> it was as big as a dinner platter yeah. and he put it on my desk. He says, does that work for you, boss? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it, again, it, 
you know, when you preserve and you become the, the, uh, the guardian uh, of a collection of trees, you know, some, sometimes you have to manage change. And, uh, and uh, we were fortunate to have the, you know, the skilled staff um, and the support to be able to do it very quickly. And, um, and even though it was a bad situation, um, it worked out pretty well. And then we took all the wood that, uh, had to be salvaged. Um, we had it sawn up. <laughs> I had a, two friends from forestry school, um, have, a uh, Lewis, Lewis lumber and Lewis lumber products. Um, uh, Mark Lewis and, and Keith Atherholt, um, we got together and, uh, we, we sawed all that wood and, uh, the uh, Penn State Alumni Association actually set up a uh, web store. And when I retired, we had sold $1.2 million worth of, of like gifts, everything from, you know, like the little box uh, or yeah. picture frame all the way up to like uh, rocking chairs that were worth 2000 bucks. Wow. And, uh, it was, it was, you know, and what that did was again, out of tragedy, uh, came a positive situation. We took that money and endowed it, and essentially that'll fund tree planting for on into the future. Wow! So they they actually now that's and yeah, people could you know get take you know own a memory of that. Yeah, I think what what you kind of need to understand if you know that part of the state, like what when Jeff was talking about his his dad's accident when Dutch elm disease came through in the sixties, between the death of Dutch of the elm trees and the death of chest, chestnut blight. The forest in the eastern United States and Pennsylvania changed dramatically. Those two trees probably made up, what would you guess, Jeff, 60% of the forest? Yeah, easily. So so much like when a wildfire comes through an area, which people are familiar with today, it totally changes the ecosystem. Well, the Dutch elm disease and chestnut blight did the very same thing just over a longer period of time. And, you know, and listening to Jeff tell the the story of Harry, his dad, it's like it was a natural disaster in every respect. It was just much slower because it affected people's lives because Jeff's dad wouldn't have been out there cutting that dead elm tree down if it hadn't been for Dutch elm disease. Um, and it really, really impacted. Correct. I mean, in the city of Pittsburgh, there were elm trees like there were just whole streets that were nothing but elm trees. And literally in a year, they all died and had to come down because they were literally falling down in the city. So it was like it was almost a gold rush of tree work at that point and just everybody was doing it and it just really needed to be done. And I don't think people understand that when you get a a blight or something that comes through and is so selective, how much it changes the community. And the corollary to that was is state college as university tended to be a bit of a bubble. So these were the last of these majestic elm trees left in the state. Um, You know, it was, they they were like a monument to what the state, the state force used to be not only for the university. So it was really, I mean, that's right. For me, it was when you started, I started thinking about it and hearing the stories and even Chris, you know, and Chris has, has some great stories about <laughs> elm tree removals and we'll get him on too, Dwayne. I just haven't caught up with him yet. Um, it's just, oh, yeah. you know, it's just the way those trees and the sudden death of those trees impacted the community was every bit as impactful as a forest fire, but just over a much longer time frame, which in some respects can be worse, mm-hmm. right? Okay. You know? Well, you know, it just gets more to that whole, it's more than just an economic impact. Like there's a spiritual or a sentimental quality that is inherent to the trees. And, you know, that 
you know, it's why I still like the, I use the analogy of the human forest because to me, they're not separated. Like trees are part of our human forest. They're part of, we're part of that forest. But, you know, call it what you will. But the, the feeling that uh, being amongst trees or that, whether it's in an urban setting, whether they've been planted trees or whether you're in the forest itself, you know, obviously we know that trees release, you know, terpenes and chemicals that, that literally calm us. And they do that even in the urban setting, you know. And in a canopy, I'm, I'm really curious to know, because anyone that's climbed a tree, as you all, as you know, all of us here have, but anyone that's ever just, you get there, I mean, obviously there's the fatigue and the, the, the effort it takes, which is part of it. But there's this just, any arborist has sat there and you just, you're, you feel part of something that is, it's almost a, uh, an element of, of adventure and, and exp- exploration or expedition, even though, because it's just not inhabited commonly by people, right? Like you're above in this realm and there's a sense there. I can only imagine what it must have been like in those elms, you know, for you being part of Penn State prior to their removal and everything. And what a unique perspective that arborists get to bring, because we not only look at it from the ground, but from the canopy as well, and what it's like to be up there, right? But uh, it's true, they bring such a different yeah, you know, was, Go ahead. Sorry, what was interesting, um, you know, when you talk about that connection to trees, I, I just got a call the other day, and, uh, you know, Penn State still does call. Okay. And uh, they were asking a question about uh, a tree that had been named. And uh, and it was, it, it was just one of those crew names that where we had a connection uh, the, to that particular uh, tree. And there was a lot of them around where you, you'd worked on them enough that, you know, they were, they were part of the family. Yeah. You know, your, your job was to protect them. Yeah. And, we, and when I would say, you know, the U-House Elm, everyone on the crew knew exactly what I was talking about. And it was because it was just such a magnificent, uh, one of God's creations, you know, yeah. I mean, it was, um, and there were a number of those. And it was funny because when you retire, some of that, you know, corporate history is lost. And they were like, this particular tree, why was it, why was it named? And I, I said, it, you know, it wasn't like it was, um, you know, commemorated for someone in particular. It was, it was the crew name for that particular plant because again, it was family. Yes. It was, it was something that you managed and, and touched many times throughout its life. And uh, yeah. And, 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 you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of other, facilities, you know, uh, parks and, and, uh, municipal plantings and, you know, other college campuses where that, that occurs just naturally. Oh, yeah. anyway. And it's that connection, um, you know, because it, it, there's a reverence for them. Yeah, absolutely. That, absolutely. That just because they've been there for so long, yeah. they're a part of the history. And, um, you know, your, your job as an arborist is to protect and guard yeah. it and, you know, pass it on into the future. There, there is something about something with people. It seems, for some reason, and I mean this genuinely because I really don't know what the reason is, but I know it's it's common. I think it's internationally. It, it transcends language, and that is a reverence or a respect for an old living thing, you know. And I think the only thing older yep. is probably mountains, right? Like 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 earthen structures, like mountains, but trees. You know, mountains aren't as alive in the sense that a tree is. And, and to have any, once a tree's old, 
something that outlives us by so many, many years, like in decades or, you know, centuries even, to, without problem. You know, the oldest living things on the planet, there's just something about it. You know, there, it doesn't matter what culture you're in. And uh, what do you think that is? Like, why is it that we have that reverence? I, just because we can't do it at all? Is that why? Or I'm curious, you know? It's it's just the respect, you know, for the resource. And yeah, I think it's a bit of jealousy. It really is I mean, jealousy. That, that was... We want to live that long, and we can't. <laughs> so we have to kind of... Well, you yeah, know, it might be part of it. Right? Like it might be part of it. Like we can't. You just can't do it. Like you can't. We can't. And 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 I think it's also there's something about and it's and I think it magnifies as you get older. Um, you know, and, you know, because you. You know, you think back a little bit more on your past when you're older, not, you know, not regretting it, but just, just, just reflecting. And uh, how, how something could, like what it has seen, because that's what we reflect on, or I can speak for myself. I, I think about what the tree looked like or what my landscape was like or what my friends were like. And, you know, and, and as people pass on and, but the tree's still there. The tree is as big and as old as it ever was, and it's not even close to going anywhere, and it's going to be there long after I'm gone, and maybe that's part of it, right? Maybe. <laughs> you know, I, I, I have a, I've had a similar experience the first time I discovered uh, the age of lobsters or how, how long... I, I remember hearing, learning one time that for every pound for a, lo a lobster is it's 10 years old. You know, the most common lobster served in restaurants is two, two and a half pounds. So they're 20 to 25 year old creatures, right? And I thought, man, that's quite that. And it also helped me realize why there's no lobster farms. You know, there's all sorts of other farms. There's even tree farms, but there's no lobster farms. But, like, it's just something about thinking, wow, that thing, like, something that's lived that long and then to be harvested seemed, it seemed, you know, if a deer lived 50 years, I might be hesitant to harvest it. But I don't, have, you know, I do hunt and, and uh, but maybe if it was really, really old, it'd feel different. I don't know, because I don't like cutting down old trees. And I also found it interesting, Jeff, uh, you mentioned that there, that trees had, like, there were trees that were guarded and protected and then trees that they were close to that list and then trees that not that that would be you know you'd be willing to sacrifice for the construction like rather than take these let's move over it here which means we'll just take these and that you know that you would prioritize that yeah and you know they went through a rigorous assessment um you know i was, I was starting to talk about um they they renovated east halls and i'm, I'm told it's one of the largest um uh, student housing uh, complexes in the country. And, uh, you know, it was built originally in the 70s and uh, it was in definite need of upgrade, um, both uh, as far as, you know, all the, the support uh, aspects of, you know, electric and, you know, internet and, you know, that kind of stuff, but also in the preferences of what modern students expect in their housing. And so it was a, a very significant restoration. And I, my, the way I explained it some, to some folks is the trees that make it through this, you know, make it through the rigorous process of assessment 
will then be the future heritage trees, you know, down the road. And, and, um, you know, I, I, uh, we took that very seriously and, and, uh, but, you know, again, you still have to facilitate, um, the upgrade of the facilities to support the academic mission moving forward. And, um, you know, I think, you know, with the trees that, that made it through that construction process, they will anchor that landscape long into the future and give the, you know, the, the overall, um, um, feel, uh, Tony was explaining earlier, um, you know, moving forward. And then when you add, you know, the, the, the dynamic of, of new plant material to, to, uh, complement that, I mean, it really, it makes for a special place. And when you, when you walk across campus and you look at the historic buildings, you look at the old trees and, uh, you know, and then the, the installation of, of other plant material, uh, it, it just makes for, a, you know, a place that people want to be. And, uh, no, I, I think, Jeff, you know, you're, I was struck earlier on in our talk about your, your relationship with the different um, uh, departments, I guess I'll use the word, in, in, in the university. And, I, and something that I heard in what you were saying was a respect. And I think that's what you're continuing to talk about. And it's having not just the respect for each other in, in your different job respects as far as what you have to do, but then also the respect for the tree. And you were able to somehow pass that on. You were able to get everyone to respect each other and the trees were just part of that. And that's really a special thing. And I think that's, you know, maybe that's really what it is about old trees is the respect. You know, they just demand or yep. command it that's at correct. the same time. Yeah. Yeah, you might be onto something, Dwayne. Maybe we respect them as we learn to respect them a little bit as we get a little bit older ourselves because we know how hard living is. Yeah. Living was easy when I was 21. Exactly. Ain't so easy now. <laughs> well, and, I, and you can't, you, you know, a problem is it may, might be the same for the tree, you know, if we could talk to them, like what it must be like to be able to sustain that structure. <laughs> you know, I know it's what it's like to sustain this old structure. Imagine if I, it was a 400-year-old tree, like that tree's going, man, you got no idea, man. <laughs> <laughs> and how would you how would you can you imagine trying to live that long i don't know if i'd wanna <laughs> I, I shouldn't say that but you know what i mean it's uh yeah and um you know obviously we can't help but anthropomorphize you know trees and you know we always are giving them human qualities like when we do give them a name uh uh you know where I'm, I'm really curious you got me really thinking about the name thing how many named trees are still on campus that you would go and say that's such and such and, and can you oh, i don't know if i can give you a number that? but there's a lot there's a lot of them so what are the fir first five well we you know mind? some of them were um you know like the the pew street mall and some of the largest elms and, Pew Street. you know, if I said the Pew Street Mall, everyone knew that that was that collection of elm trees. Um, there was another one where there was a uh, okay. um, a physical plant upper administrator that used to walk this one walkway because it, it just was just a spectacular place with large, mature trees. And they called it Spearley's Walk. And we had Mussy's Oak and, and uh, 
Yeah, there, there's a number of them. Wow. And, you know, Mussy was a previous um, peer of mine, a supervisor that, you know, if you got near that tree, you, you and he would have some definite problems. And you know, he, he guarded that tree <laughs> enough that um, we named it after him, you know. And, uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I'm sure that that's Mussy common goes. with, you know, other crews uh, across the United States and in the world. You know, and again, it's some of that's the respect um, that that comes from you know being able to work with something that that's that, that spectacular and has attained that age. Um, and you know, again, I always viewed it as an honor to be able to work with it. And um, you know, if you have if you have some small well, impact to it moving forward and preserve it into the future, you've done a good thing. Well, that's just a beautiful thing as well. And I think it's something that we all hope to in, inspire and strive to pass on and hope people listening to this will remember that or think about that because it's the the honor it is to be able to work on a tree or to be able to care for a tree or protect a tree or to have a say in what happens in and around a tree. Like what an incredible uh Oblig- uh, responsibility, you know, really. It, it, I remember Jack Phillips, a friend of ours that would teach, I met him through Dr. Shigo. You know, he would, he, he, he would really, with quite reverence, talk about how, the, how significant it is to plant trees and care for trees because, they, because of the impact that they have on community and the people and the human forest. And, and we're that connection. We're, you know, we're the Loraxes, if you will. We're the ones that speak. And on behalf of what's best for the trees and help people understand that and create that connection. What a, what a, what a cool thing and, 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 and important thing, you know, and you've, uh, you, you clearly have done a, a stellar job of that. And hopefully, you know, people can learn and uh, maybe one day you can, uh, you know, somehow write out or explain how you did that, the playbook, of how you, Develop that respect for the trees with the people and everybody you work with, because that, that's what you seem very successful in having done. Yeah, but that, that you know, that, that idea is not unique to me or, you know, I mean, that, uh, I'm sure that happens around the world. Um, you yes. know, um, I don't know if there's a playbook, you know, you know what I'm saying? Well, I do, and I and I really respect your humility as well, because I, 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 you know, I don't know that you had the answer, and I think it's all, it's unique, and it's sometimes I think, I guess I think of it this way: How many times have you been on a crew, or have you in your career? I know I can think back to a few times when I was in production tree work, where I was part of a crew that everything that summer was the summer of perfection. Like we would pull up to a job and everybody knew what they were going to do. You knew how to, and you had fun. You were efficient. You enjoyed it. There was no quibbling and it just, you know, and then it was just, it just all clicked. Sometimes maybe that's what happens too. Right? No, I agree a hundred percent, you know, and I've been, uh, you know, through my career blessed to be able to work with an amazing collection group of people, uh, very skilled, um, you know, the crew at Penn State and, and all the folks there. But also, you know, the same thing would occur when you'd go to an ITCC event. Um, you know, you would have, you know, some of the most, the most accomplished uh, tree professionals in the world come together to put on a, uh, a safe competition, um, 
you know, and we would all come from different parts of the world, gather. Um, It was a total team effort. And uh, I had a, there was a horticulture professor at Penn State and his analogy was more to fundraising. And he said, you know, if you're, you're trying to accomplish a goal like that, you know, and you know, his analogy was like loading a big log on the back of a truck. He said, you know, if, if uh, one or two people try to do it, you just can't. Right. But, you know, if you get 20 guys together, you just pick it up and throw it on. And, you know, that's kind of the way I always felt, you know, going to an ITCC event, you know, all the preparation, you know, with the rules committee and everything. And then, you know, coming into the actual event and getting to work with noted professionals um, and, and then, you know, to ensure the safety of, of all the competitors. It was an honor and, uh, uh, you know, it's something I'll always remember. Um, it was a highlight of my career. Well, it was a, it was a great to be part of, uh, like I was under your leadership at that time as part of the ITCC and, it, and, uh, it was, it was always a, play, you know, you, you brought that, uh, gift that you have into that atmosphere as well, that, that clearly you, you, you know, had and, and developed also at Penn state. So whatever it was in your, your upbringing that, that brought a break from that first tragic experience and, and maybe it was. You know, how, how much connection to that, that may have a lot to do with it, you know, Jeff, like, and, and experiencing the benefit of the kindness of others and needing that and being able to accept that. And you were able to, to experience that and you've carried it through. Well, Tony, I, I didn't realize how much, like, I know you guys are in Pennsylvania and in the same state, so clearly you would know each other, but I didn't know that you knew Jeff's father like you did as, as well as you did. I wasn't aware of that. Yep, I didn't interact a lot with Harry uh, off and on. Harry was always a guy like, you could always ask him, you were going to get an honest answer. You probably might not like it, but you would get an honest answer. So he was a great resource for like when, you know, you needed that. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, you look at like there's in, a, in an area, locality, when you have tree climbing comps or at least in the arborist world, there's always has to be that one person that is like the driving force behind it. And, and Jeff's dad, Harry was that guy for the Western part of Pennsylvania. And, wow. you know, it's the, it's the Pennsylvania, Delaware chapter, but people like William Buckley described Pennsylvania, politically speaking, he says it's Philadelphia and Pittsburgh with Alabama in between. And that's, <laughs> um, that's very true. Uh, and it was, you know, for a very long time in the arborist world, that was very true. You had the guys out around Pittsburgh, you had the guys around Philadelphia and then somewhere in between was was no man's land, but, but Harry was that man that bound those two together, um, and was a driving force. Um, you know, I think through tree climbing competitions, just his involvement in volunteerism. And like I said, my, my limited exposure, you know, cause Harry was, he was kind of, he was fading as I was coming up, you know, it was, was still a driving force, but I always remember him being like I said, it, you, if you needed an answer, Harry would give you one, you might not like it, but it was an honest answer. Um, and you could you could take it to the bank, right? You know, it was it was it was correct. So it was good stuff. He was a uh, he was a master sergeant in the Army Reserve, and uh, he could get stuff done. There's no doubt. And if you were on the symposium floor uh, during the conference and had any money in your pocket, and he had the fifty fifty raffle tickets, and oh yeah, yeah, I know those guys. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, Jeff, I want to thank you for, uh, you know, I, I have to say I was, I, I'm, when you started talking 
in the very beginning about your first memory and connection to trees, I was taken a bit aback, but I, I seem to have, I, I, I had forgotten about it. I, I, I'm sad to say, but I have some memory that I never heard it in the detail you shared it with today. So I want to thank you for that once again. And uh, it was just a real, uh, it was just a really great story because it was so honest and, and real. Um, I know it was a tragedy and it was difficult, but, but it, you know, it's, I think, like as we've said, it really did shape you, of course. And uh, thanks for, for the whole thing, the, the, the taking time to, to talk with us and share. I really appreciate it. Well, uh, you know, I appreciate you guys asking. Um, and, you know, hopefully there's some young guys out there that, uh, you know, if you have an opportunity, get involved with the ITCC because the benefits for you are, are going to be immense. And uh, highly encourage it. And, you know, the three of us, um, it's been a, a great life experience uh, that had an impact um, pretty much to everyone, I think, that's been involved in it. And uh, mm-hmm. highly encourage, yeah. highly encourage it. Hello everyone, Tony here, and I'm letting you know that Dwayne and I will be taking Tree Actions live. On March 27th and 28th of this year, we will be at Arbor Expo at the New Jersey Convention and Exposition Center in Edison, New Jersey. Come join us for the tree industry's fastest growing trade show and conference. This year features 19 education sessions, two of which I will be delivering, as well as all the exhibitors and demos you can expect from an excellent trade show and conference. We will look forward to seeing you there.